Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. In the weeks ahead, we will get ready for the Hall of Fame inductions next month, and you'll hear my conversations with Derek Jeter, as well as 2019 Hall of Fame inductees Mike Messina and Mariano Rivera. But another significant event in July will be the 80th anniversary of Lou Gehrig's famous speech at Yankee Stadium, which occurred July 4th, 1939. Gehrig, as we all know, had his Iron Man streak of 2,130 consecutive games ended two months prior, and in less than two years, he would die from ALS, known forever after as Lou Gehrig's disease. MLB celebrates the anniversary of Gehrig's speech, where he declares his dying self the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And in leading up to that, I wanted to talk a little more about the man and the speech. Coming up a little later, you'll hear from Matt Dahlgren, whose grandfather, Babe Dahlgren, was the man who replaced Gehrig in the Yankees lineup on May 2nd, 1939, and ended the famous streak. But we start with Jonathan Eig, the wonderful writer who, among many terrific books, wrote Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. It was first published in 2005 by Simon & Schuster and is still very much available. Eig is one of the definitive historians when it comes to Gehrig and his tragic story. So as we lead up to the 80th anniversary of the famous speech, here's the first part of this episode, a conversation with Jonathan Eig. And I began by asking Jonathan about the mood around that speech on the day it happened in 1939, because the public knew very little about what actually was wrong with Gehrig, and even Gehrig himself wasn't aware that the disease that had sapped his strength and taken away his ability to play was going to kill him in such a short period of time. That's right. And it was it was really uncertain, and, and even now for people with ALS, it, it's uncertain because there are so many different varieties of ALS, and nobody really knows exactly what the disease is. I think, you know, it's going to sound strange, but I think 20 years from now, 50 years from now, we're going to understand that ALS was, was probably 10 different diseases. So Gehrig didn't know that he was dying, and he thought there was a pretty good chance he would live with this thing for, for years and years, maybe decades to come. And the fans thought it was kind of like polio. You know, they didn't really understand um, even as much as Gehrig did. Gehrig knew that it could be fatal, but um, there was a lot of confusion. So I think the emotion, the reaction was already very emotional, but it would have been even more emotional if people knew just how, how little time Gehrig had. Yeah, and his speech in a, in a world like today would spread like wildfire on social media. But even then, in the slow-moving world in 1939, it seemed that people knew right away what kind of a moment that was yeah and remember they didn't think the world was slow moving they thought that the world was <laughs> yeah. incredibly exciting and fast moving and that <laughs> they had radio and that this broadcast could be heard and, and seen you know within days all over the world on 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 movie reels and in theaters so um it it spread like wired wildfire um at least in the in the 19 30s version of wildfire yeah. and and the reporters were saying that overnight Gehrig's whole image had changed that he went from being this guy that everybody 
felt was just kind of sleepy and and shy to being a real hero, you know, a, you know, a Hollywood, he- you know, hero. They just a guy showing incredible courage. Yeah, and that was you know a lot of that was over the course of his career when he first came up. You know, Babe Ruth is this gargantuan figure, and he's he's bigger than life on the field and off. Gehrig's personality just was different, and the the sports writers at the time treated him differently, didn't they? Yeah, that's putting it mildly. I mean, Gehrig was incredibly insecure for a big, strong, handsome guy like that, um, you know, super talented. Um, how could he have been so shy and so insecure? But he was, and reporters just left him alone. Um, they didn't they didn't mock him. Um, they kind of every once in a while joked about what a, what a bore he was, hmm. uh, but that's just because he was being himself. He was he he didn't need the spotlight. He didn't like attention, and he was happy to let Babe Ruth, you know, take all of the uh, all of the glory and just do his job. Um, and but then when he gets sick, um, people begin to appreciate what what he had done and what he had been all those years. Yeah, and it's weird too because there came a point in their careers where it was, it became obvious that, that Gehrig had surpassed Ruth as, as a hitter and you know, babe had gotten older. Uh, and, you know, looking back on the numbers, Gehrig is this just amazing offensive player. One of the, you know, you can count on one hand, the number of people who've done what he'd done in the course of his career, but he wasn't the same drawing card, partly because of the personality, partly because of the way the media played, the Great Depression had a, something to do with it too, because um, at, at the time that he really took off, but he just even at his peak as a player, he never really got the kind of attention maybe he deserved. No, and I think in some ways that was by design. He, he was just happy to blend in and let Ruth take the attention, and then DiMaggio comes along, and I think Gehrig is relieved that this, here's you know here's somebody who can take all the questions from the reporters after the game so I can, I can slip away to the, into the shower and, and disappear. Uh, I, I, that was just his personality. And, and the, the great thing about Gehrig, the thing I really love about him, is that he was okay with that. You know, people were, were probably urging him to step out and to, and to write an autobiography and to, and to do more endorsements and, and to, 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 you know, generate some more headlines. Mm. And he just didn't feel like doing any of that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you pointed out how differently he had been treated, and you know it might have affected a different player differently. But when DiMaggio comes up in '36, he's stealing all the headlines, even in games when Gehrig has better games. DiMaggio is the one getting the the headlines in in huge type. Yeah, it's really amazing, and and, and some of it's the fact that uh, you know DiMaggio is younger and and and. And he's just uh, you know more of a more of a, a, a sexy figure, mm-hmm. and he plays center field, which is you know a bit, a bit more um, of, a, of a star's position than first base. But Gary, it, it's just it's just Gary's personality. The reporters couldn't get anything interesting out of him, yeah. so they so they didn't pay much attention to him. They was they weren't going to make their they weren't going to get bonuses from their bosses for writing about Lou Gehrig because Gehrig <laughs> never said anything interesting. I I find the sad irony here. Um, that 
the disease felled a man of such enormous strength and power that really hadn't been seen before. And you contrasted this with, you know, when he first starts taking batting practice, compared, you know, what the ball looks and sounds like compared to when Babe Ruth hit it. It's a much different power. And this is, you know, they to be able to sap the strength from a guy who was so enormously powerful and different than anybody had ever seen that to me is is really what you know is kind of at the heart of of what we think of when we think of Lou Gehrig yeah and it's what makes this story so classically tragic Gehrig is is the iron horse he's the guy who just never gets sick never takes a day off he's he's proud of the fact that, that he can show up for work every day uh, even though you know the babe needs time off because the babe's not taking care of his body um, the same way and and then this is the guy who gets hit with the with the disease and what does the disease do it melts your muscles the strongest man in baseball um, and 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 he gets hit with a disease that melts his muscles away I mean it, it couldn't have been more more tragic and the signs of this were starting to show up in 38. I mean, if you look at the numbers, okay, maybe they weren't the same as, you know, 1927 or some of the other great years he had, but it's still a pretty phenomenal season he's coming off of in, say, 37. And then in 38, the signs of it really start to show, even though nobody's really aware what's happening. Yeah, I make the argument that 1938, Lou Gehrig had the best season in baseball history. Um, his numbers were, were 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 just good. They were all star numbers. You know, I think it was 114 RBIs, 28, 29 homers, um, and a batting average around 300. Um, but to do that with ALS, and I get, I can tell you for a fact that he had ALS for almost that entire season, maybe the entire season, even going back into spring training. He played every game. He led his team to the World Series. He put up incredibly strong numbers, and every day of that season. He was getting weaker from this disease. And to me, that's the greatest individual accomplishment in the history of American sports. Yeah, and you um, you illustrated there's, there was one play in particular that it seemed like this weird signal to everybody. And I can't remember if this was early in 39 or if this was in 38. Um, I think maybe it was early in 39 where you describe him ripping a short double to left field and the second baseman was at the bag taking the throw and preparing to get maybe taken out or ready for a hard play. But Gehrig couldn't even get more than halfway to second base. And rather than, you know, he didn't try to get into a rundown. He didn't try to run the guy over. He just turned around and went back to the dugout. And, you know, he had called himself out is how it was described. That's, you know, everything was really starting to become very different for him as a ball player. Yeah, and he knew it was happening and he couldn't figure it out. And imagine if you were you know, in your mid-30s, and all of a sudden, you just felt like you were aging, you know, like years at a time, at, at, at per day. He just, he couldn't understand why all of a sudden, his skills and his speed had just vanished. And that, you know, an obvious double, he's hit, you know, how many doubles in the course of his yeah. career, I don't remember. But he knows when he's hit a double, and it's pretty automatic. You like, he, he hustled out of the box, and by the time he made the turn at first, He's like, wait a second, I should be at second by now. And and there's the ball, and he's out, and he's just completely mystified. And this kind of stuff was happening to him every day. Um, you know, he wasn't reacting to pitches fast enough to get out of the way when they were when they were inside. He wasn't taking the throws at first base. He was having trouble getting his feet set. Um, he, it must have just been so um, confusing. And, and he continuously kept saying, well, it, it'll pass. This can't be normal. 
whatever it is, there's something wrong with me. I got a bug, a virus. It's, it's bound to pass because how else could you explain it? Yeah. And, and the, you know, the streak ends, um, in May of 39 and in the next two months between then and the day of the speech, you know, he's got the doctor's appointments to visit to Mayo Clinic. And, you know, we talked about, he, you know, they kind of figure it out, but he's still not really sure what the diagnosis is, but everybody is, is still acting, you know, there is something tragic they can tell because they're, they're treating this as the end of a career and just, you know, really an abrupt end of a career that they really don't know how to kind of wrap their minds around. That's right. And I think that explains the sadness. It would be as if, you know, you found out that uh, Kevin Durant was never going to play again because yeah. of his Achilles. There'd be, you know, there'd, there'd be a lot of sadness about it. And, um, and, and there'd probably be a, you know, a fond send off. Um, but nobody knew that Garrett was, was really dying. Garrett probably knew that there was a chance that this would kill him. But even then, he was kind of in denial about it, which is normal for people who get that kind of a diagnosis. You know, you your brain kind of goes into this state of denial, and you tell yourself, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat this. There's no question in my mind. I'm gonna beat this um, until the you know the disease has its say." Yeah, and like to be clear, like the doctors didn't seem to be. I know it's hard to piece it all together exactly, but it didn't seem like the doctors were telling him the whole truth, whether it was you know how much they knew or trying to protect him. And I think at one point, like he's thinking, okay, this might kill me, but not for another ten or fifteen years. This was it was still really unclear as to how quickly and how devastating this was. That's right. It was one doctor there in particular who seems to have been misleading Gehrig. Um, and again, it's human nature. You, you, you don't want to tell somebody the worst case scenario. So you tell them, listen, there's new science. There's, there's treatments that we're experimenting with that might work. And we've seen patients live with this for, you know, a normal lifespan. And, and that's true. There are, you know, look at Stephen Hawking. How long did he live with ALS? Mm-hmm. I have a friend here in Chicago who's had ALS for 16 years now. So mm-hmm. it, it happens. But the average is, you know, is about two years that people live from the diagnosis. And people were not telling Gehrig that. Uh, I think they were, they were trying to offer him a sense of, of hope. So you get to July 4th, 1939, and, you know, I, I feel like it, the Yankees threw, like, the first unofficial old-timers day as they threw this grand ceremony for him. They invited back the 27 Yankees, um, and they, they went and, you know, they flew in everybody at their own expense. Now, if we know anything about baseball owners back in the day is that they were not really uh, uh, willing to spend a whole lot, but they seemed to spare no expense to throw this a uh, lavish ceremony for Gehrig on that day. Yeah, that was an incredible moment. And, um, you know, they, they, they probably thought that it would help sell some tickets, and it did. Um, but I think generally it was out of love for Gehrig that uh, this was a guy who had done so much for the, for the team over the years. The Yankees, by, the, by, the, by that time, he had really sort of set the image of the Yankees. You know, we think of the Yankees now as being this, this very professional, very conservative organization where um, you know you, you just uh, you, you, you keep your head down and do your job. Mm-hmm. And the tone that that Gehrig set really became the tone for the Yankees over the course of the rest of the century. And the day of the ceremony, a lot of people speak, and he's last. But you know, throughout throughout the whole ceremony, you know, 
you know, I don't even think anybody was really sure he was going to because he didn't really want to get up and speak. I think you described how Joe McCarthy is the one who finally urged him to get up there and, and finally give this speech. Yeah, Gehrig didn't even want to go to the ballpark. He didn't want them to have a ceremony in his honor. He didn't want any of this. And then um, he was really determined not to speak. And uh, once he got out there on the field and and he, he saw the other um, people speaking and heard their, their words, he, he was even more determined that he was, wasn't going to say anything. And the uh, the MC said, I'm sorry, Mr. Gehrig has informed us that he's he's too moved to speak. And the crowd started chanting, Lou, we, Lou, we want Lou. And McCarthy gives him a push in the back, and Gehrig goes up there with his twisting his hat in his hands and putting his head down. And even at the, when he gets to the microphone, you're not sure he's going to be able to speak. And then slowly he begins and gives the greatest speech in the history of American sports, one of the greatest speeches in all of American history, I think. Um, and one of the great questions is whether he had written it out in advance or whether he delivered it extemporaneously, and we, we really don't know. Yeah, I think there was there was some thought as to maybe he had had some notes written out, but you know he obviously didn't have them with him, but he maybe sketched out some ideas of thoughts, so he had some idea, but as to what actually came out of his mouth at that moment, you know, no really, no real way of knowing how much of it came from his heart. And, you know, all the people that he thanked too, and I think his, his wife ended up pointing this out, and you wrote about this, like, it was important for her in the, when the movie version is made, to keep the speech um, to the point where, you know, he's thanking all of these people rather than taking credit for his own greatness in his career. That's right. He doesn't recall the greatest moments of his career. He doesn't, you know, fondly reminisce about his first World Series. He thanks the ushers and he thanks the 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 guys working in in the in the clubhouse. He thanks all of his managers and his mother and his mother-in-law and his. He, he, it's just an incredibly um, unselfish speech, and it, 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 it that's what makes it so great. He's he's saying. You know, I, I may be dying. I may have gotten a bad break, but look at all the wonderful things that I've had in my life. You know, why should I feel bad? And and that's what makes it a speech for the ages. John, you've you know the book you wrote, Luckiest Man: Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. It, it's been almost fifteen years since you put that together, and it's obviously still some uh, a subject that's close to you. Um, why has it stayed with you as much as it has all these years, as opposed to something else that you kind of put on the shelf and work on the next project? Well, for one thing, I absolutely fell in love with Lou Gehrig, and, and I will always be madly in love with him. He's just one of the most fascinating and warm people I've ever encountered, and I, I certainly wish that I could go back in time and, and meet him. And, and um, I just feel like uh, he's a, he's become a soulmate for me. And he doesn't have any kids or grandkids, so I'm just honored to be able to help continue his uh, telling his story. What do you think of every July 4th? I mean, the speech gets replayed, and MLB has done a wonderful job of, of remembering it, not just on the anniversary years, but in every year. And they did a, a terrific video a few years ago where they had a uh, number of different players from every every club uh, recreating the speech. Uh, every year, July 4th, I mean, you know, it's, it's a day we all like to celebrate different things, but, um, around baseball means something else. What do you think of when you, when that day rolls around? You know, I, obviously I think of Gehrig and I think of the, the courage that he showed that day and, and how, um, in your worst moment, 
um, you have the potential to inspire others. Um, and the grace that he showed in in the in the most difficult moment of his life um, continues to inspire all of us, and it especially inspires people who get that ALS diagnosis. Because when you get this diagnosis, and it's it's a, it's a terrible, terrible diagnosis. It's um, you know doctors tell me that it's the worst thing they can ever tell a patient. It's worse than a brain tumor. Um, but when they get that diagnosis, they immediately think of Lou Gehrig, and they think of the strength that he that he had all of his life, including when he was dying. And to have that kind of uh, of a of a hero to look up to, um, I think is is hugely important for for not just for people with ALS, but for every, anyone who's going through a hard time. Ig's book is still widely available. Once again, it's called Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. Two months before this speech was the day the streak ended, and as I mentioned earlier, Babe Dahlgren had the unenviable task of taking Gehrig's place in the lineup. Dahlgren's grandson, Matt, lives in California and grew up hearing tales about Gehrig from his grandfather, who lived until he was 84 years old before he passed away in 1996. Matt Dahlgren has a treasure trove from his grandfather's playing days, but even that is a fraction of what it used to be because of a house fire in 1980. But the physical items, plus the stories he passed down, like any grandfather would, they have become a part of Matt Dahlgren's life too. I began my conversation with Matt by asking him about Babe Dahlgren's emotional place in the story as a young player who grew up admiring Lou Gehrig. My grandfather grew up in San Francisco um, idolizing Lou Gehrig, um, you know, 3,000 miles away, but uh, he had drawn pictures of him on his school binder and, and, uh, Lou Gehrig was was his idol growing up, and when my grandfather broke into the big leagues in 1935 with the Red Sox, um, that was his first chance to actually meet Lou. Um, and there were some photos of the two of them taken together, and and it was a big thrill for my grandfather. In fact, his debut, his major league debut, was against the Yankees uh, at Yankee Stadium in 1935. Um, interesting story about that year in 1935. Uh, in August of 1935, in a game at Fenway Park um, with runners on base, uh, Garrett came up and hit a uh, line drive base hit out to left field. And as he rounded first, he took a fall. Um, and he just he was laying face down in the dirt uh, in fair territory. Uh, and my grandpa was screaming for the ball uh, so, you know, so, so he could tie Garrett out. Um, the umpire who was umping first base shouted "time out," and my grandpa kept screaming for the ball. And the ump said, "I said time out." <laughs> and so, so time was called, and the uh, Yankee training staff ran out. Players gathered around, and I actually have a photo of that moment. Um, my grandfather's on his knees, right at the head of Derek, um, as if he was checking on him to see if he's okay. But it's a very poignant photo in that it was four years prior to to Babe replacing Lou. He's on his knees trying to help him out at Fenway Park. The ironic thing about that play is that um, Garrick stayed in the game uh, briefly, and then when his next turn at bat came up, he came out of the game. Um, his back was completely uh, it had completely stiffened up on him, and he could hardly move. The Yankees were rained out. The, the, the game was rained out the following day. Oh. Um, and then they played, they resumed play the two days later. And it makes you wonder if that rain out the following day kept his streak alive. Yeah. And and I think the kind of the thought, I was just reading that story, uh, yesterday. Um, I think the idea was that maybe as early as 1935, 
you know, it's hard to say if that's yep. related or not, but maybe you start to see maybe some of the first signs of what that's was right. to come. My grandfather always thought that, um, you know, whenever he thought about it, he, he couldn't help but remember that incident and just wonder, like, you know, was it starting to creep in as early as 1935? I mean, no one will ever know, but, uh, it, you know, it's, it's certainly one of those things that um, my grandpa thought about because he was right there and witnessed the whole thing. So, yeah. So so two months before the big speech is when the streak ended. Uh, it's May 2nd, 1939. And Gehrig has decided to, to take himself out of the lineup. He tells Joe McCarthy. But here's the weird thing. Joe McCarthy, manager of the Yankees, didn't come tell Babe Dahlgren that he was in the lineup. One of his coaches did. That's right. So uh, before the game, uh, the players were in the clubhouse getting dressed. And there was a quiet mood in the clubhouse that day. Um, everybody kind of felt something was going on, but no one knew for sure. But, you know, there was just kind of a quiet mood. And it was Art Fletcher who came up and tapped Babe on the shoulder. Um, my grandpa was sitting in front of his locker just kind of, you know, tooling around with his glove. And, and Fletcher came up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, you're playing first base today, Babe. And, and literally said it and walked away. Wow. And my, my grandpa looked up at him almost thinking, is this a joke? I mean, he couldn't believe it. Yeah. And uh, Fletcher turned around and said, good luck, Babe. And that was it. And so, so... In that moment, um, here he is sitting in the clubhouse of Detroit and thinking back to his childhood once again of, of, you know, idolizing this guy, and now he's thrust into the position of replacing him, and, and, you know, when the streak comes to an end. And he always told me it was the one day in his life that he didn't want to play baseball. He he literally, he he just did not want to play. He wanted Lou to keep playing. And um, as he went out onto the field... Word started to spread. There was a buzz out on the field. Photographers were taking pictures and things like that. Uh, pictures with Lou, pictures, you know, with Babe and Lou. And and, uh, and before the game, uh, Babe had a moment finally where it was just he and Lou. And he said, Lou, you've put me in a, a terrible spot here. Um, you know, you got to get out there and play. And, and Lou kind of put his arm around him and, and reassured him that, no, you're going to do just fine today. And and uh, the Yankees went out that day and, and, and really took it to the Tigers. They beat them 22-2, to two and, and my grandpa had a home run and a double. And, and uh, as the seventh inning rolled around, Babe went up to Gehrig and said, Blue, you got to get out there and keep your streak going. And, you know, seventh inning, eighth inning, ninth inning, and Lou said, you're doing just fine, Babe. And, and that was the end. That was it. Wow. I mean, yeah, as he's recounting, your your grandfather lived to be 84. So, I, you know, I'm sure you had so many opportunities to hear the yeah. same story. Um, could you I'm assuming that it's one set of emotions the day it happens in 1939. And then as you get older, that it, maybe it becomes easier. But but did it become easier to tell him or could you tell some of the same emotions coming, you know, coming right to the surface as he was retelling it to you all those times? I would see um, my grandpa would get emotional talking about um, the, the, the speech on July 4th. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a very emotional thing for him. And, and uh, whenever he would talk about that, he would always kind of well up and, and choke up. Um, he didn't get emotional talking about the day that uh, he replaced Garrick um, because at that time, no one knew anything about Lou's fate. They just, they knew Lou was, was, wasn't Lou. Um, he had had a horrible spring. 
and and the writers were writing about him and and all questioning you know whether he was done and washed up and what have you and and so everyone knew that Lou was off and he wasn't himself but everyone thought that he would just kind of come out of the lineup for maybe a day or a week or what have you and, and just rest up a little bit and then get back at it so whenever my grandfather talked about that day he didn't have those the same emotions that he had about talking about the, the speech which we can get to yeah so. the the day of the speech the one of the things i found interesting was that as the yankees brought back you know they they turned it into what was unofficially the first old timers day they brought back the 27 yankees and i actually didn't realize this they brought back wally pip so in the building for the that game on july 4th you have wally pip lou Gehrig, and babe dahlgren uh yep. is that the only time that they've they ever shared a space together as far as you know well i actually ironically and this is really strange the day the streak ended may 2nd 1939 in detroit wally pip was in the stands that day oh wow and i don't i yeah and i don't even know if to be honest with you i, I i've read that and i i never uh they've never told me that i've read that um in fact i think it's in jonathan's book even mm-hmm. um but uh it's just talk about you know being ironic and and fate and what have you um that he was in the stands that day in detroit um but yes then fast forward to um july 4th um him being there as well as far as i know that's the only time uh that that pip and my grandfather and garrick were all standing on the same field together well, they um, there's a story about how they all, as everybody gets lined up, and you know, Gary wasn't even sure he he wanted to speak or didn't want to speak at all until the very end. He actually did, but you know, I found it odd that McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, who didn't even want to tell Babe Dahlgren that he was in the lineup, sent somebody else to do it. He said something to to Babe right before. Um, I guess before the ceremony started, right? Didn't he tell him to, to like watch out for, for Lou Gehrig? Yes. In fact, so if you look at photos of that day and Lou standing at home plate, you know, with the microphones in front of him, mm-hmm. you have both teams lined up. You have the Yankees in a line and then you have the Senators in a line. Well, my grandfather happened to be uh, standing right on the third base foul line and he was in proximity, the closest to Lou. Mm. Um, and, and I believe Rolf was standing right next to him, uh, Red Rolf. But um, McCarthy walked past Babe right before that speech took place and said, don't let him fall. He said, if he starts to go down, catch him. And uh, that stuck with Babe throughout the entire speech. And, and one thing my grandpa always told me about that speech was that as Lou was talking He's, and the way my grandfather described it to me, he said it was as if Lou had a, a motor in his rear end. He said his legs were, were just trembling, uh, like from the waist down. Um, and he didn't know, I mean, looking back, I mean, Lou, was, Lou stood before massive crowds for 14 years. I don't think it was a case of him being nervous. I think it was his legs. The, the 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 disease already kicking in and his legs were weak and he said that as he was watching him give the speech he couldn't help but notice his rear end almost vibrating uh throughout the speech um 
and, and he just he was telling himself, praying to himself, please get through this, please get through this. He didn't want, you know, the thought of Lou falling and him having to run up and try to catch him throughout this whole thing was weighing on my grandfather throughout the entire speech because McCarthy said, don't let him fall. Wow. Did you, um, did you ever get an opportunity to, I mean, I, I know you've heard the speech a thousand times, all of us have. Did you ever watch or listen to it with your grandfather? You know, I think I've... I've seen the the traditional clips that have been played. Um, you know, you got the the famous clip of him talking about being the luckiest man, and and I've seen that clip with my grandfather. Um, I've subsequently, you know, over the last several years, found additional clips um, that I'd never seen with my grandfather. Um, but definitely the the you know the clip that we've all seen. Yes, I watched that with him, and we looked at many pictures of that day together, and so. I definitely got a sense of the day, um, a first a first hand sense of the day, just by talking with my grandfather over the years, and we talked about that day quite a bit. Yeah, it's and it must feel like an odd place to hold in history, where you know you you have a grandfather who played major league baseball for twelve years, was an all star in nineteen forty three, and played with and against some of the greatest stars in the game. Uh, but he's tied to this one moment that that doesn't have you know the same glory attached to it as as maybe other players have certain stories. There's there's such right. a sadness around that story. Did that did that always seem to come through when you were talking to your grandfather about whether it was that day or his his career? Yeah, I mean, again, whenever whenever that day was was uh, talked about, um, my grandfather would, would always get emotional about it. It, it it still to this day strikes me, um, you know, when I see photos of Garrick from that day and, and I see my grandfather standing right behind him in the background, it just blows me away that, that my grandfather was so close to that part of history, um, not just baseball history, but American history, um, that he was so close to that, witnessing that as it happened. It just, to this day, it still blows me away. Um and I, and I, you know, it's something that I'm very proud of. And I was very fortunate to, to have him as a grandfather and to be able to hear those stories. And, and uh, it's just something that I really draw on to this day even. Yeah. And you don't just have stories. You had, you know, some, some documentation too that led to something else. And, you know, the reason that, that you and I talk and the reason I found you is you put all that stuff, your grandfather's stories surrounding Lou Gehrig and everything else about his career into a book called Rumor in Town, A Grandson's Promise to Right a Wrong. It was published in 2007 from Woodland Lane. And if people are still looking for it, it is available uh, on Amazon in different places. Um, but there was more to your grandfather's story. And I, I, I do want to get into it in greater detail with you in the future, but I like for you to kind of tell people what this is all about, because um, his, you know, he wouldn't have had maybe a Hall of Fame career, but he might have had a longer career if it wasn't for a rumor spread by Joe McCarthy and Branch Rickey that kind of, I don't want to say blackballed him, but it did have an impact on on what what happened in his career. Yeah, that's correct, Sweeney. So, so, and I'll try to cut to the chase. So when my grandfather passed away, he left behind on his desk a, a three-ring binder of over 300 pages, essentially a memoir that he was writing. He was trying to tell a story. He wanted very badly to tell a story, um, his story, about something that happened to him during his career, something that he took to his grave. 
And I knew how badly he wanted to tell his story. Um, and so when he passed away, I, I went to his house, uh, walked through his house just by myself. Uh, it was just a day that I took up there by myself. And I was walking through his house, and I went into his office, and I took his three-ring binder, and I, I made a promise to him uh, kind of right there in the moment that I would um, tell his story for him. And so I sat on it for a while. I took the binder home, and, you know, over a year or two, I kind of kicked it around, and um, time passed. And then I started doing some research and some additional research through microfilm and things like that. And uh, in 2007, as you say, uh, the book Rumor in Town was published. Um, and it's a story about my grandfather being the first Major League Baseball player to ever uh, submit for, to take a drug test. And he did so voluntarily. Uh, he went to Kennesaw Mountain Landis in 1943 and asked to be tested because of a rumor that was uh, spreading throughout the league, um, a rumor that he first heard, my grandfather first heard from Branch Rickey, um, and who he always suspected Joe McCarthy might have had a role in it. Um, but the book gets into the rumor, gets into uh, how it affected my grandfather, um, what kind of an effect it had on him, not only through his playing days, the remaining of his playing days, but also the rest of his life. And as you said, the book is called Rumor in Town, and it is available uh, right directly from my website, which is mattdahlgren.com. Fantastic. And it's D-A-H-L-G-R-E-N. Um, and it's it's the story of how Babe Dahlgren, the, the rumor was that he was a marijuana smoker, and mm -hmm. that rumor spread around and affected uh, really – the rest of his career and as you said the rest of his life and, and a great deal of yours too you go to a great yeah. amount of time to to tell a story and it's certainly worth reading and i would love to talk to you about it, that part of the story in greater detail uh down the road i do want to ask you though matt what do you think of every july 4th um as a baseball fan uh, around major league baseball they're always celebrating lou gehrig's speech i mean and as you said, your grandfather told you this story so many times, and he's front and center. I mean, he's in the famous picture. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think of every July 4th? You know, it's funny. Uh, everybody on July 4th thinks of the obvious. It's the 4th of July, um, and we all celebrate our country. And, and um, But I also, ever since I was a kid, I mean, and I'm talking, you know, seven, eight-year-old kid, on July 4th, I knew that it was also... Uh, Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day, and you know the day of that famous speech, and not a not a Fourth of July has gone by in my life where I haven't thought about that and just reflected on it and looked at maybe even gone back and looked at photos from that day. Um, it's just left a profound. Uh, it's had a profound impact, I should say, on, on not only me but my family and and uh, my siblings and my dad. And um, it's just a it's an emotional day for all of us, just knowing that my grandfather. Uh, in, in my dad's case, his dad was there and, and a part of it, a big part of it. So something we're very proud of. Matt Dahlgren's book, Rumor in Town, A Grandson's Promise to Right a Wrong, is quite fascinating. It was published in 2007 by Woodland Lane. And as he said, you can buy that directly from his website, mattdahlgren.com, D-A-H-L-G-R-E-N.
Also, follow Matt on Twitter where he posts some fabulous old-time baseball pictures, not just of Babe Dahlgren and Lou Gehrig, but so many more classic photographs of players from eras past. You can follow him at MattDahlgren12. As we get closer to July 4th, you will see and hear more about Lou Gehrig. And if you feel so moved, visit ProjectALS.org, where you can make a donation to help those living with ALS, a disease that 80 years later still has no cure. Please check out our past episodes at Radio.com, WFAN.com, and iTunes. Go ahead and subscribe, and in the coming weeks, you will hear from Derek Jeter, as well as Mike Messina and Mariano Rivera, as they prepare to enter the Baseball Hall of Fame. Until then, thank you for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.